to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist and source for all mental health-related news. This is the show where you will hear everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and helping you make sense of media reports about the latest research into potential new treatments and the causes of mental illness. Along the way, trying to better educate the general public about mental health issues and reduce the stigma of having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. All that delivered to you with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry without the hype and distortion of other media sources. Welcome again to this week's edition of Psychiatry Today, pre-recorded to air on January 21st, 2015. Well, this first item on tonight's show has to do with the combination of alcohol and prescription medications. Now, even though I am a psychiatrist and this is a show about psychiatry and mental health-related issues, this item certainly is not necessarily restricted to the interaction between alcohol and psychiatric medications, although I certainly will discuss that as we go over the article, this is really meant to be a more global look at the fact that many Americans um, tend to mix alcohol with medications. And we're not talking about that they're consciously taking their prescription drug and washing it down with a glass of wine or a beer. We'll get into more detail as we go on. But just a few weeks after the New Year's champagne has been imbibed, um, and there are no doubt going to be some adult beverages consumed uh, <clears throat> on Sunday uh, when we have um, the uh, Super Bowl coming up in a couple of weeks. I thought timely to mention this issue, and so this article definitely caught my eye. It says that more than 40% of Americans who drink alcohol also take medications that may interact with the alcohol, according to a new study. Medications ranging from sleeping pills to blood pressure drugs can cause problems when taken with alcohol. Well, what problems can they cause? Nausea, headaches, loss of coordination, how about internal bleeding, heart problems, and difficulty breathing. The study comes to us from the National Institutes of Health. Now, in the study, researchers looked at the results of surveys from nearly 27,000 men and women ages 20 and over. These surveys were conducted between 1999 in 2010. So a decade, a pretty good uh, stretch of time 
also 20,000 people, a nice sample size. So those two things make the results pretty accurate. Now the participants reported how much alcohol they drank during the past year and which medications they used over the past month. The researchers focused on drugs that produce side effects when combined with alcohol. The results showed that mixing alcohol and medications that interact with it may be common. 41.5% of people who reported drinking said they had taken one or more of the risky medications. The study was published on January 16th in the journal Alcoholism Clinical and Experimental Research. The data doesn't exactly say how many people in that 41.5% actually drink and take their medications within a similar time frame or how often they do so. However, if someone drinks regularly and takes medications regularly, the likelihood of taking them within a similar time frame is pretty high. And what we're talking about here is that, again, like I was saying before, you don't have to be washing down your prescription medication with an alcoholic beverage. But if you're on prescription medication for any illness on a daily basis, that medication is in your bloodstream all the time, not just after you took the pill. So any time you're drinking any alcohol, the alcohol and the medication are going to be interacting in your bloodstream, in your body, and if it's a central nervous system acting medication, such as people with psychiatric problems take, then it's going to be interacting in your brain as well. And the effects of alcohol in the brain, of course, are well known. So you're combining that with the effect of the medication. <clears throat> Not surprisingly, the researchers found there were greater risks among older people. And listen to this, almost 78% of people ages 65 and over reported both drinking and taking such medications. People develop more chronic diseases as they age, so older people are more likely to be taking medications, many of which can interact harmfully with alcohol. Moreover, mixing alcohol and medicine could be particularly concerning among older people as people age and their metabolism slows down, the ability to break down both alcohol and certain medications may decrease, creating a much longer window for potential interactions. <clears throat> and when you're talking about the effects in the elderly, the combination of the medication and alcohol could lead to very serious problems, falls, um, problems with memory and thinking, confusion, disorientation, uh, as well as heart arrhythmias and, of course, abnormalities with blood sugar if they're diabetic. All, di all uh, alcoholic beverages are just sugar. <clears throat> now, the main types of drugs that people reported using in the survey were blood pressure medications, 
sleeping pills, pain medications, and muscle relaxers, medications for diabetes and cholesterol, and antidepressants and antipsychotics. Now, antidepressants and antipsychotics are used for depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia. And again, as I said before, you're combining two different chemicals that have effects on the brain, those medications and alcohol, and that's what can lead to dangerous side effects. Now, the sleeping pills uh, were listed right after blood pressure medications uh, that may indicate that next to blood pressure medications, sleeping pills were the ones most commonly to be taken in combination with people drinking alcohol. <clears throat> well, you may or may not have heard that prescription sleeping pills, especially Ambien and uh, perhaps also Lunesta, have a very scary side effect known as sleep driving. That is, people in their sleep under the influence of these prescription sleeping pills get up out of bed, get their car keys, get into their cars, drive, get into wrecks, get into scuffles with the police, all while they're asleep. It's not just sleepwalking, sleep driving. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because alcohol, in combination with these sleeping pills, is what is most notoriously resulting in the sleep driving. Um, <clears throat> a uh, politician in the Kennedy clan had this happen to him. Uh, <clears throat> other people in prominent positions have had this happen and tried to use it as a defense. And... Uh, you know, just my own personal speculation, uh, Tiger Woods' infamous episode where he crashed his vehicle <clears throat> right outside his house, and in my opinion, it was one of those such episodes. Well, <clears throat> so mixing alcohol with these medications can also counteract the effects of the medications, or, uh, as we've discussed, it can worsen their side effects. Alcohol can increase blood pressure, which certainly is counterproductive if someone is taking medications to reduce or control blood pressure. And many blood pressure medications are diuretics. So if you're mixing diuretic medications with alcohol, which is also a diuretic, that could contribute to dehydration. Diuretics are chemicals that cause your kidneys to flush water out of your system faster. For that matter, caffeine is also somewhat of a diuretic. And for people taking medications for diabetes, drinking alcohol can affect blood sugar like we've talked about. Now, it is not an exaggeration to say, and the researchers pointed out, that the consequences can even be life-threatening. Mixing alcohol and other sedatives, like sleeping pills or narcotic pain medications, can cause sleepiness, problems with coordination, and potentially suppress brainstem areas tasked with controlling vital reflexes like breathing, heart rate, and gagging to clear the airway. 
This would result in difficulty breathing, heart arrhythmias possibly slowing down or stopping, and choking or aspirating because you can't cough and clear your airway. About 70% of adults in the U.S. drink alcohol, and nearly 25% report they've engaged in binge drinking in the past month. But people, particularly the elderly, should ask their doctor or pharmacist whether they should avoid alcohol while taking the medications they are prescribed. I would tend to think it's the exception that they should feel like it's safe to drink rather than to assume uh, that you have to find out if you shouldn't drink or not. All right, well, we're going to take our first commercial break on the show. We'll be back with more mental health-related news. On the other side of that, you are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist, with all the latest mental health-related news. Uh, just a few more thoughts on what we talked about before the break, the 
Studies showing that many Americans mix alcohol with their prescription medications, not necessarily on purpose or knowingly, and the adverse consequences that can happen. I don't want anyone to think that I'm just arbitrarily anti-alcohol. It's well known that with moderate use, uh, which is defined as up to two drinks a day for a man and one for a woman, uh, assuming there are no other reasons not to drink, that's perfectly fine and not problematic. What I'm talking about is people who take prescription drugs that adversely interact with alcohol, and especially people with psychiatric illness where alcohol is a central nervous system depressant, and it isn't only the consideration of adverse interactions between the alcohol and psychiatric medication, but it's the perhaps even more urgent consideration of the alcohol having an adverse effect on the person's symptoms, aggravating the course of their illness, including depression and insomnia, which uh, can be side effects of alcohol use. Uh, So really, when there are no reasons not to drink, uh, such as no psychiatric or medical problems or prescription medications that someone is taking that would preclude it, alcohol is perfectly fine, again, as long as someone is sticking to moderate levels and not binge drinking, which is uh, more than four for a man, more than three for a woman within a 24-hour period. Well, next up on Psychiatry Today tonight, I have a stress in the workplace update for you. Stressful jobs may increase stroke risk. And this is probably not something that those of you who are struggling with a stressful job want to hear. And uh, perhaps for some of you, it was your New Year's resolution to 2015 to finally get away from that job making you miserable and try to find something better, especially since the job market uh, seems to have finally gotten somewhat better. Uh, So after you hear this, Maybe it'll give you a little bit more incentive to try to get away from that stressful job. Because a review of several previous studies concludes that people who have demanding jobs and job strain are more likely to suffer one particular type of stroke. Job strain has previously been linked to heart attack risk in the past, but not necessarily to stroke. In this new analysis, which pooled the results of 14 earlier studies from Europe, people with job strain had an increased risk of ischemic strokes. Now, ischemic strokes happen when the brain doesn't get enough oxygen, for example, when the arteries are clogged. This is as opposed to hemorrhagic stroke, in which a blood vessel bursts and there's bleeding into the brain tissue. Data from the 14 European studies between 1985 and 2008 altogether included almost 200,000 adults who filled out questionnaires about job strain. The studies lasted nine years each on average. 
those with a demanding job and little control over their work environments were categorized as having high job strain. Uh, now, what do they mean by control over their work environment? Well, the classic example of this is people on a uh, street construction site and one person is working the jackhammer, which is subject to horrific noise and horrible vibrations throughout their body, but then there's someone standing next to them, uh, working with them. Well, actually, the person standing next to them has less control over their job stress, because at least the person operating the jackhammer knows when he's going to hear that noise and feel that vibration, whereas the person next to them does not. So that makes that job more stressful, more job strained, because they have less control over their work environment. So people in that category, high job strain, accounted for 13 to 22% of people, and that, that was the range in the different studies. In general, out of every 100,000 people in Europe, each year, 115 men and 75 women have an ischemic stroke. In this new study, the risk of ischemic stroke was about 24% higher for people in the job strain group than for the others. There was no difference in the risk of hemorrhagic stroke. High blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, and family history of stroke are all important risk factors. But data about these things were not available for most people in the new study. The researchers did account for basic socioeconomic status, which they used as a stand-in for other health risk factors, which lessened the increase in ischemic stroke risk for those with stressful jobs. Now, why did the researchers think they could do this and still get useful analysis? Because there's a very, very high correlation between overall health status and socioeconomic status. Not surprisingly, the higher your socioeconomic status, the better your health, and the less likely you are to have <clears throat> health risks such as uncontrolled high blood pressure and diabetes and high cholesterol, uh, <clears throat> and even smoking. Now, this and other studies do not necessarily prove that stressful jobs cause strokes. However, the association is plausible because stress can certainly increase the release of stress-related hormones, which in turn affects the metabolic, immunological, and cardiovascular systems. The stress hormones can aggravate fluctuations in blood sugar, suppress the immune system, and increase heart rate and blood pressure. Ischemic stroke, like heart attack, is closely linked to atherosclerosis, or hardening of the arteries, which, as we well know, is associated with stroke. In any case, job strain is hard for an individual to change, even if it is increasing the risk for stroke. Right, so what good does it do to have this information 
if you can't do much about alleviating job strain. It's theoretically employers' responsibility to see that working conditions are healthy. Individuals can't often control this. Stress is only one of the potential factors at play with stroke risk, though. Recommendations are to keep track of things that you can control. Watch your blood pressure. Don't smoke. Eat well. Keep a healthy weight. Exercise. Along with that, it may also be good to try to avoid long periods of stress, but actually, there is not currently evidence from interventions to prove this. It seems intuitive given the long-standing associations between high stress and increased risk of heart attack, and now this study shows increased risk of stroke, that reducing stress would help. So even though there's no direct study of that that proves it, uh, it would seem to be a good strategy to follow. Now, again, uh, not everyone will have the opportunity to leave their high-strain job for something less stressful. Uh, But to the extent that people in that situation can modify these other risk factors that they do have control over, they will still be mitigating their risk of stroke. All right, next up on Psychiatry Today this week is a Psychiatry and the Law update. Uh, There has been a new development in the, well, there have been several developments over the months, but uh, another article about the James Holmes trial out in Colorado. Uh, Experts are saying that even if he is found insane, he's unlikely to be freed. Now, if James Holmes is found not guilty by reason of insanity, in the Colorado movie theater massacre, he would be committed indefinitely to the state mental hospital, but could, in theory at least, be released someday. Psychiatrists and attorneys say that's highly unlikely, given the enormity of the shootings and the notoriety they have generated. Jury selection uh, began on the 19th, or was scheduled to begin on the 19th anyway, for Holmes, who was charged with multiple counts of murder and attempted murder in the July 20, 2012 shootings at a Denver-area movie theater. Twelve people were killed and 70 were injured. Prosecutors are seeking the death penalty. Holmes pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. His attorneys have acknowledged he was the gunman, but say he is mentally ill and was gripped by a psychotic episode when he opened fire on a theater in the Denver suburb of Aurora, where more than 400 people were watching a midnight showing of the movie The Dark Knight Rises. Now, to be clear, obviously, the man does suffer from mental illness, and I think it's fair to say he most likely was under the grips of a psychotic episode when 
he committed these horrific acts. Uh, so really, I don't think uh, anyone can make a good argument uh, that uh, this, the insanity defense in this case is valid. But the law is much more complicated than that. And that doesn't determine guilt or innocence or what the punishment should be. We'll go into this in more depth when we come back from our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because I believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individualized. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing or your child has frequent throat infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you will be treated as an individual, not an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed, and all of your questions will be answered. And when possible, I will recommend natural treatments to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America. AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay. We're talking about the Denver area movie theater massacre as part of our psychiatry and law update. Now, before the break, it was telling you how it's very clear James Holmes was acutely psychotic when he did this he clearly is mentally ill but in a case like this determination of guilt or innocence and also punishment is more complex than just that now Colorado law defines insanity as the ability to know right from wrong because of a mental illness or defect that's a fairly standard definition the jury will make that determination based on evidence presented at the trial, including two court-ordered sanity evaluations at the Colorado Mental Health Institute 
at Pueblo. Now, the law sets no minimum time that people must remain in the state hospital after being found not guilty by reason of insanity, except to say that they can't ask for a release hearing in the first 180 days. Patients who show progress can be granted a measure of independence, ranging from supervised movement around the hospital grounds through off-campus visits to unconditional release. To qualify for unconditional release, Holmes would have to convince the hospital and the courts that he is no longer a threat to the public for the reasonably foreseeable future. That is the standard for release set by Colorado law, and certainly that would be a very, very tough case for Holmes to make. The state records in Colorado show the vast majority of people granted off-hospital grounds privileges after being found not guilty of murder because of insanity were charged with killing someone they knew, usually a family member. Although the available court records are often sketchy, in some cases the insanity defendants believed the victim was somehow tormenting them. Holmes, by contrast, is charged with a brutal attack on complete strangers. The issue is going to be, how do we know that this person no longer has that type of mental disorder that could cause him to go to a different place, to a different community, to a different area, and do the same thing? It would be nearly impossible for Holmes to convince a judge he was no longer a danger to himself or others. It is theoretically possible that treatment by psychiatrists could put Holmes' mental illness into remission and render him no longer a danger. But it's just not realistic that that would ever happen. From a social policy perspective, Given the enormity and the gravity of the offenses, there would be such a huge uproar. Let's take the example of John Hinckley, who was found not guilty by reason of insanity in the 1981 shootings of President Ronald Reagan and three others. He was committed to a psychiatric hospital where he has been for 32 years. Hospital officials have said his mental illness has been in remission for decades, and he now spends more than half of each month at his mother's home. He is able to drive. He's able to have unsupervised time. The man made an attempt on the life of the President of the United States, and he was able to achieve this status. And there was actually a very recent development that came up in his case. Uh, the uh, Reagan's press secretary, James Brady, was also shot in the attack, uh, recently passed away. And very, very provocatively, the coroner determined the cause of death as homicide, even though the shooting was in 1981. Uh, of course, 
Uh, I, it's fair to speculate that this uh, very provocative conclusion on the part of the coroner was um, meant to demonstrate their own uh, personal leanings about their feelings about the shooting and uh, any attempt to bring new charges against Hinckley uh, went nowhere. But regardless, uh, here's an example of someone who clearly was mentally ill. I mean, he had these delusions that he would impress actress Jodie Foster, for whom he had this obsession, uh, by killing the president in some twisted way connected to a character in uh, a movie. So he was found not guilty by reason of insanity and therefore confined to a mental hospital instead of prison. It does seem fairly likely that Holmes is headed on the same path. But overall, it seems highly unlikely, no matter how much he responds to treatment, no matter how much he improves, that he would ever reach the point that Hinckley did of being able to walk out of that psychiatric hospital at any time for any reason. The district attorney's office that handled the original case could argue against such privileges before the judge decides, and prosecutors would certainly argue strongly against any freedoms for Holmes, no matter how long he is confined, no matter how much he responds to treatment. So the expectation is that for generations to come, he would see objection after objection after objection to being able to receive anything that people sense is remotely close to a sense of freedom. Well, uh, so with jury selection just starting up, it's obviously going to take a while, but um, finally it does seem like the trial is close to getting started, and we'll see another uh, murder case with the insanity defense playing out, see what happens, and uh, I'll be sure to bring you appropriate update on that. Next up on tonight's show, this article caught my eye because I think it's an example of how a report of medical research results in a soundbite that can distort the message and also give the unsuspecting public the wrong idea about a certain treatment. And <clears throat> the study is about a medication that many people are actually taking. Uh, and this um, sort of soundbite that comes out of a study like this that the media reports on could potentially at least make people concerned about taking the medication and at worst maybe steer them to stop taking it when that might not be a good idea. So I decided to want to review this with you and give you my own take on the medication, on the results of the study, and the message uh, behind the article about the study. The article says, smart drugs won't make smart people smarter. Well, that's a, a pretty provocative title right there. Again, designed to be a catchy soundbite, not necessarily 
accurate or informative. So let's try to find the real story behind that soundbite. It is claimed that one in five students have taken the smart drug modafinil, which is the generic for provigil, to boost their ability to study and improve their chances of exam success. But new research into the effects of modafinil has shown that healthy students could find their performance impaired by the drug as opposed to improved. The study was carried out at the School of Psychology, University of Nottingham, Malaysia campus, and published in the open access journal PLOS One. It showed the drug had negative effects in healthy people. They looked at how the drug acted when the subjects were required to respond accurately and in a timely manner. Their findings were completely opposite to the results they expected. Now, they only used 32 participants with the drug and 32 on a placebo. It's a very small sample size. And all the participants were given a well-known common neuropsychological task in which they're asked to respond quickly and accurately to some questions. And the researcher found that the drug slowed down reaction times and impaired subjects' ability to respond in a timely manner, utterly failing to improve their performance. Well, the um, lead researcher claimed that it had been argued that modafinil might improve performance by delaying your ability to respond, and that this delayed-dependent improvement might improve cognitive performance by making people less impulsive. They found no evidence to support those claims. And that instead, he says his research found that when a task required instant reactions, the drug just increased reaction times with no improvement in cognitive performance. Now, the same researcher published a study back in September, which had similar findings, and that one was called The Effects of Modafinil on Convergent and Divergent Thinking of Creativity. And that trial showed that the so-called smart drug impaired the participants' ability to respond in a creative way, particularly when they were asked to respond somewhat outside the box. Also, his findings raised the question, does modafinil benefit anyone? And... <clears throat> What he found was that those who weren't able to respond creatively to start with were improved by the drug, while those who were, were impaired. Uh, so just to make the point, uh, those findings do back up the fact that drugs called psychostimulants can help some people. All right, well, we'll continue to examine this issue in great detail and debunk some of the ideas presented in the article. We'll have to take a break here, and we'll be back after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. Understanding health insurance is becoming more challenging. 
If you currently have insurance, you've probably noticed that it costs more to see your doctor. And if you were able to keep your doctor, it takes longer to get an appointment. The bad news is this trend is projected to continue. Your costs will continue to rise while your health care choice and access will continue to fall. The good news is Peachtree ENT Center has the answer to this problem. We are committed to working with you. We specialize in providing affordable care for patients without insurance, those who are underinsured, and those with high deductibles or catastrophic coverage. And we offer same-day appointments. You no longer have to choose between staying healthy and paying bills because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health news. And we're talking about some research that calls into question the benefits of of the drug modafinil, that's the generic of ProVigil. And there's also a newer version of ProVigil, I should say, called NuVigil. And uh, it's quite similar chemically. It's armodafinil instead of just modafinil. Now, um, <clears throat> with this more recent study and previous work that the same researcher has done, uh, he does admit that people who are having problems with cognitive function to begin with may benefit from it. But he's saying modafinil isn't helpful for healthy individuals, and it might even impair their abilities in terms of response time and lateral thinking. While those who have some impairment in terms of creative abilities may benefit from it. Uh, now, the overall conclusion is really not all that earth-shattering. He says, if you're already a healthy person and functioning at an optimum level, it is really difficult to improve your cognition. And so, okay, that that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And it's not exactly, as I said, a brilliant conclusion. Uh, I think that the message here um, should have been just that, okay, if you do not have a legitimate reason to take modafinil, which is narcolepsy, sleep apnea, shift work sleep disorder, then you ought not to be taking it because it at least won't help you and at worst, it may actually hurt you. Um, There are other psychostimulants that are similarly used and misused and abused uh, by people to stay more awake and alert. Uh, Typically on college campuses, uh, Adderall and Adderall XR are used in this manner and arguably could be more widely prevalent in terms of their use and misuse than marijuana and other drugs uh, because college students are using it to gain an edge, stay awake longer, to study better, improve their grades, improve concentration and memory to improve grades. Well, so the take-home message should only be 
that if you don't have a problem to begin with that modafinil is legitimately used for, you ought not to try using it. But the whole point of my discussing this article is my concern is that when messages like this come out in the media, people who are taking modafinil will question, wow, hey, maybe this stuff's bad for you. Maybe I shouldn't take it. And they might even stop taking it because they're concerned about this. When in fact, stopping it may be a very bad thing for them, that they are benefiting from being on it, that they should continue to take it. Again, the legitimate reasons for taking modafinil, which is provigil, or the newer version, nuvigil, include narcolepsy, sleep apnea, shift work sleep disorder. Now, there are other uses for it that are certainly legitimate, but the FDA never gave their formal approval for these other uses. Some of those include severe fatigue from various different reasons. For example, there's been very good legitimate research that modafinil is helpful in the severe fatigue that patients with multiple sclerosis suffer from. Likewise, modafinil has been studied and found to be helpful and safe for treatment of idiopathic hypersomnolence. Now, that's a lot of fancy-sounding verbiage for just extreme tiredness for which there's no known cause. <laughs> right, that's all that means. And <clears throat> there are trials that were done with modafinil for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, otherwise known as ADHD. Uh, modafinil was found to be effective, but the FDA declined to approve it because in the trials on children, one child had a serious rash, and even though the FDA's own dermatologist on their advisory committee assured them that the drug did not cause this child's rash, the entire FDA decided to decline to approve modafinil for ADHD, and uh, the drug company then chose not to pursue it after that. Regardless, many doctors know that modafinil was tested and found to be effective in ADHD, so sometimes it is prescribed off-label, uh, meaning outside the uh, actual uh, sanctioned and approved uses of the drug when either approved drugs do not work well uh, or whether doctors would be concerned about giving a patient something severely addictive or abusable for ADHD like Ritalin or Adderall, for example. So really, there are a lot of people who take modafinil for one reason or another, and I sincerely hope that with uh, research like this getting out there and the media citing the soundbite that, hmm, the smart drug is really not so smart, uh, I sincerely hope that people wouldn't be frightened by that, stop taking it. Um, and my general advice to all of you out there is if you are on a certain medical treatment or medication 
you hear of or read of something in the media about potential lack of effectiveness or potential side effects of that treatment, before you change it or stop it, please discuss the issue with your doctor, who most likely can give you the real information behind the soundbite that might frighten you about the treatment that you're uh, taking. <clears throat> well, next up on tonight's show, uh, you know I'm always talking to you about ways to improve your sleep and how important getting a regular good night's sleep is. So I saw this article um, about a sleep tweak that could help you worry less. And that caught my eye because certainly worrying about things when people lie down at night to go to sleep is a big reason why people have trouble sleeping. So let's see if this can actually help. Uh, can the time you go to sleep actually influence the types of thoughts you have? Well, according to this article, science says yes. Are you a chronic worrier? The hour you're going to sleep and how much sleep you're getting overall may aggravate your anxiety. According to a study published in the journal Cognitive Therapy and Research. The, the good news, though, by tweaking your sleep habits, you could actually help yourself worry less. Researchers from Binghamton University in New York used the results of questionnaires and two computerized tasks from a group of 100 young adults to measure sleep amounts, as well as how much each of the participants talk about fear and anxiety and worry. After analyzing the data, they found that people who sleep for shorter amounts of time and go to bed later have greater levels of worry, rumination, and obsessing, these factors that contribute to a process called repetitive negative thinking. Also, they found that those who classify themselves as an evening type, meaning they tend to stay up later, shaping their daily activities around night owl behaviors, are more likely to report repetitive negative thinking than those who have morning-centered daily regimens or don't adhere to either morning or evening schedules. <clears throat> now, those who are affected by mood and anxiety disorders frequently report repetitive negative thoughts. Sleep may be a form of thought clarification and regulation. We know that not getting enough sleep can interfere with emotional and cognitive functioning. While you're asleep, your brain is building and refining connections, integrating memories and emotions, and preparing you for the next day. So why do late sleepers have more negative thoughts than morning risers? Within any 24-hour period, your body prepares you for many different tasks, like paying attention, solving problems, and regulating emotions. You'll do best if you do these tasks during the time your body is prepared for them. When it comes to timing tasks, your body functions on its own clock. If you refuse to operate by your body's timeline, you might be in for a literally rude awakening. People are best able to focus their attention in the few hours following waking up. High-level cognitive processes, like the ability to inhibit thoughts and images, may be diminished as the day goes on. Therefore, individuals who go to bed later 
may be more prone to experience these repetitive negative thoughts and have trouble dismissing them. There are ways to control your mind and sleeping habits. For some who truly can't shut off their minds or get much rest, cognitive behavioral therapy has been effective in reducing repetitive negative thinking. And then there is what's called chronotherapeutics, which is aimed to improve sleep through light exposure in the morning, melatonin at night, and other interventional techniques taking into account a person's natural circadian rhythms. But for most people, simple at-home tweaks can help you sleep more and worry less. Build a routine around bed and wake times that is kept regularly and designed to be relaxing. And make sure your sleeping space is conducive to sleep. Dark, a comfortable temperature, and only used for sleep or sex. And if you're not actually ready to go to sleep, do other activities in different places, not in the bedroom. Also, restricting your hours of sleep at first might be a useful technique to get better rest in the long run. This is so you're not just lying in bed with mind racing and worried thoughts. <clears throat> As you tire earlier with less sleep, you can progressively increase the amount of time you're in bed each night. Overall, people need to think about sleep more completely. It's not just about how much you get, it's when you get it that matters too. If you're not actually resting at night, you're selling yourself short. So shut the computer off earlier, shut off your smartphone, put away your work. And there's not much better excuse for catching a few extra winks than worrying less. So what they're saying is, get your sleep period in sync with a normal circadian rhythm, sleep-wake light dark cycle good advice gonna to have to wrap up the show quickly hope that you have a wonderful stress-free week until we get together again next time if not then you need to call dr scott good night and thanks for listening this is america's the best in chat radio designed just for you